Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen. Today, my guest is Henry Sokolsky. He is the Executive Director of the Nonproliferation Education Center in Arlington, Virginia, and author of Underestimated Our Not-So-Peaceful Nuclear Future. He served as the Deputy for Nonproliferation Policy in the Office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense during the George H.W. Bush administration. He teaches graduate level classes on nuclear policy and is also a senior fellow in nuclear security studies at the University of California at the San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. In addition to serving as the Pentagon's deputy of nonproliferation policy, he also served as a consultant to the National Intelligence Council as a member of the Central Intelligence Agency's Senior Advisory Group, and as a Senate and military and legislative aide, and has been on two congressional commissions uh, on the prevention of weapons of mass destruction, as well as authored numerous volumes on strategic weapons and proliferation issues. And today we are here to talk about a recent US-China war game that his uh, institute conducted. Welcome, Henry. Thank you for having me. It's quite an honor. So um, your your after action report has recently made a splash. So I just kind of wanna walk through the the basic questions. You know, what is it? Why is it important? Uh, Why did you do it? You know, what happened and uh, who was involved and what are the key takeaways? So let's start at the top. So what exactly was it? Well, the project is simple enough. I mean, it's not as though people haven't done war games before or war games related to space combat. But when I determined early on in talking to people who had engaged in games somewhat similar to the one that my center held, the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center, is that the previous games tended to have operators with high level clearances and people who were focused on acquisition of space hardware and software. But the games did not have people with you know, low clearances or no clearances who did policy and uh, diplomacy. And it dawned on me that that was a problem. And in fact, people who had held previous games related to space admitted that that was an extremely important problem because what they do in these games tends to stay unknown to the public. And I think the period of uh, utility and keeping things secret with regard to space long since left the building. And I think one of the things that my center tries to do is to help the government do and open what it may have difficulty doing behind closed doors. Increasingly, this is a problem. I mean, you know, originally had the rather ambitious idea that the center would 
be almost entirely focused on teaching teachers how to teach the topic of strategic weapons related issues. Now we still sort of do that, but I think the needs of our government are starting to uh, trump uh, the needs of academe. And so I thought, well, let's give this a whirl. So uh, that kind of one reason. The second reason, substantive. You know, here I am 30 years into a, running a center that originally was focused on the spread of weapons that, you know, essentially were nuclear weapons and, and yeah, missiles, you know, uh, why space? Well, this is another thing that uh, caused me to want to do these games. I, you know, my impression is that the key center of gravity for justifying spending money on, you know, strategic weapons, which is, they, they, the, it's one word, they say deterrence, yeah? Well, deterrence, certainly after the Second World War, had a lot to do with nuclear weapons and airplanes, missiles, uh, navies, armies armed with nuclear weapons. And it, it, it had to do with things that went on on the surface of the earth. I think increasingly, deterrence has gravitated out to space. Why? Well, simple. The eyes, ears, voices, and nervous system of our military and even our civilian systems are based in space to a great extent and in an increasing amount. And so it's quite possible that some of the first actions and thoughts about war will have to think about things literally hundreds of miles away this, from the surface of the earth. So with that in mind, we, we, we put this game together. All right. So let's talk about what, you know, well, first of all, there may be listeners in the audience that don't, aren't even familiar with what a war game is. So what is a war game, or at least what was this war game? How did it take place? Or what was the scenario? Well, first, what a war game is. It can be a lot of different things. Uh, most often, they tend to be what are called tabletop exercises. And a lot of people think that's all that these are. Now, what's a tabletop exercise? Well, roughly, not to be too harsh on, on these things, you get an idea, you want to convey it, you want to do it quickly, and you get a bunch of people who are senior and important, you think, and you tell them something about a scenario where it's pretty clear you're teaching them what the answer to the problem that you're presenting is. And you do it in, I don't know, two, three hours and you're done. Oh, we did not take that approach. <laughs> but we tried to put together a scenario where we didn't know what would happen. And instead of doing it all in one fell swoop and being heavy-handed or what they what academics call didactic. What we did is we tried to get people who were willing to take in briefs. And we had about three uh, sessions and, I don't know, five or six uh, different topics to get a little smarter on the topic uh, so that hard-headed people had to listen to some discussion of international law and soft, fuzzy-wuzzies, policy-wallacy types had to listen to something about 
technology and ASAT technology get a little smarter. And then once we got done with that, we had nine to 12 hours of gameplay, which was spread over two, two weeks so that people could reflect and think about whether they wanted to change what their movements were. And we would give them crises uh, and ask them questions and they'd have to figure out what the answers were. And we, we set up three teams consisted of the Chinese, Americans, and Japan, and its regional allies. And we managed to get a really a, a terrific group of people, which included people from the intelligence community, people from the Hill, people from the State Department, people from foreign governments. I mean, this was not just people off the street. I mean, these are people who had space portfolios. And we included people who were in early and mid-career as well, included people from industry and other people who were retired, quite a spread. The scenario... So like, how, how yeah. large were each of these teams? Each of these teams, I think all up were, you know, somewhere, you know, like six, eight people. They had to actually talk to one another. And one of the beauties of a game is that people teach each other what it is they need to be thinking about rather than somebody telling them what to think. I started to incorporate games in my own instruction. We'll see how that works, but it's, it's quite a profoundly educational experience. I mean, just listening to the people play, I learned a tremendous amount uh, about what was possible, things I had not considered myself. And I think they had the same experience. In any case, the, the general format also was disciplined. I managed to get someone who designed war games and played them for a living, a guy named Mark Herman, who was a vice president, had you know, literally hundreds of people working for him for I don't know how many years uh, at Booz Allen. And he helped design an awful lot of games in the past. So I, I try to make sure that you know, I, my weaknesses were not reflected uh, unnecessarily on this process by getting really you know, competent people. Well, we've know. talked a bit about the players. We haven't talked yet about the, the pieces. Um, yeah. and, and nor have we talked about, you know, the, the scenario, but let's talk, since we're on the subject of game design, you had a, a fairly developed force structure that, that also evolved. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, there were actually three moves and each move was played out in about three hours. So, I mean, it's a real commitment of time. You know, a lot of these people, you're lucky if you get three minutes on the phone with them much less, you know, 12 hours plus another, you know, four or five hours of, uh, of briefing. So this is quite a lot. But the first move was projected several years into the future, 2027. And what we gave each team was a set of face capabilities to survey space, uh, to have access to civilian satellites that could disable other satellites because they had arms that could reach out and grab things or possibly take parts away from a satellite or defuel them because they, we have a lot of satellites being planned that are going to go up and that even now are beginning to be deployed. 
that can refuel, repair, or reposition satellites. Now, anything that can do those positive roles can also take something out of position, take the fuel out, or take a part out. And uh, these are called rendezvous satellites because they they engage, <laughs> they make rendezvous. Uh, so uh, each side had a certain number of those. They had lasers based on, on the ground that could dazzle or harm satellites. And initially in the first move, those numbers were modest. We then had a move two years later where the, the, the force structure reflected what someone might learn from an engagement with only modest capabilities and things were not so modest they had more of all of these things and in the end game which was 2029 not 2027 we broke it into the first six months of that year and the second six months of that year and in the second six months of the year the chinese unloaded a large number of rendezvous satellites both operating at very high orbits, like geospatial levels, geostationary, and uh, low Earth orbit. And you pretty much get the impression at the end of the game, we are, uh, the U.S. and the Allies, in big trouble. And we probably have to settle with the, the Chinese. Now, the scenario in ground, somewhat realistic, the Chinese watched uh, our center and, and literally, I'm pretty sure they did uh, do a game in public that had to do with them trying to put an economic exclusion zone around Taiwan in hopes of putting the squeeze on the Taiwanese to heal politically to Chinese uh, wishes. In other words, they were going to intercept ships that were going to deliver food and fuel to the island and say, look, you got to pay a duty or we're not going to let you go. And in that scenario, the U.S. And, and Japanese come to the assistance of Taiwan, and we, we pretty much get into a shooting war. And in that scenario, it's not clear who wins, but boy, there's a lot of blood. They see this scenario and go, okay, now let's not do that. Let's try to deter the United States and Japan from coming to the assistance of Taiwan by putting things into position in space and making it very clear that we can harm space assets if and when the United States or Japan makes any moves to support Taiwan by sending ships anywhere close to Taiwan. So that was the scenario. And in the end, I think there were a lot of lessons that came from seeing how inadequate some of our capabilities were, not only physically, but that we did not have diplomatically in place rules that would make it very clear that what China was doing was beyond the pale. Very few rules in space, you see. And it's not, there's a lot of lawyers talking about rules, but there's not many rules. Well, let's just pause, but back, back it up. So the premise was that China having observed the, the disastrous results of an earlier U.S. war game said, we're not, we're going to learn from that. We're not going to do that. We're going to go in and attempt to deter the United States from intervening by uh, raising costs in, in space. And, uh, and you're saying, you know, just now that, that one of the interesting insights was that the ability of, of satellites to 
go close and not play nice with each other in, in rendezvous is a problem because there's no specified rules about doing that. So although it's very threatening, you, you can't point to, to a rule that they're violating to say that's not nice. Is, is that a proper understanding? You know, roughly. I mean, what you have uh, under uh, the most important set of rules, the Outer Space Treaty, is a, a reference to how everyone should operate with due regard, I think is the term of art, to each other's safety. But, you know, you need more than a few Washington lawyers to figure out what the heck that means. And it's open to just endless interpretation. In the game, the Chinese said, well, that's all very you know, well and fine. But, you know, you, the United States, for many years have inspected and come awfully close to our satellites, denied that you ever did that, but we know that you did. And we're just doing the same. And what's the problem? We haven't touched anybody yet. And, and it, because the, the satellites we're talking about, these rendezvous satellites, particularly the ones in GEO, might get close to some of our key communication, command and control and satellites that are essential to do military, nuclear and conventional operations. It takes quite a while to get them up there. And so you sort of know you're being approached. But what are you to do? You, you, these satellites can reposition themselves a little, but they don't have a whole lot of fuel. To, to zip around. I mean, this is not Star Wars where you're, you're zipping around from orbit to orbit with warp speed. No. The reality in space, certainly right now, is everything takes a long time. But when you're saddled up next to another satellite, it doesn't take more than a few moments for something bad to happen. So, so one of your insights then, I, I believe, is that you essentially have to be able to match the, you have to preposition and you have to have sufficient numbers to preposition for self-defense in advance. Is, is that a correct yes. understanding? I mean, the good news is that if you have assets that you want to protect, assets, satellites, you can put, and, and we know how to make these things, although I don't think we were <laughs> energetic in making them yet, you can put what we call bodyguard satellites or escort satellites. And these satellites are kind of like rendezvous satellites, but they're cheap. And what they can do is when they see another satellite that's awfully close and won't go away, it can get close to it and push it gently further away from the, the asset that you're worried about. Now that requires some understanding or some assertion at least that what the zone is that you want to clear you know it, it consists of so many you know kilometers or whatever i mean you have to start asserting as a matter of policy that you're going to enforce zones around certain assets now the french the french have already said this we've said that it would be nice if everyone would agree to this uh, but we haven't quite gotten into the business of negotiating this. So you've uh, done a, you know, both a, a fairly large and meaty report as far as what happened. And there's a very nice detailed summary with the bulletin uh, atomic scientists. And in that, you sort of step through move by move some of the creative things that, that the teams did and what were their capabilities. Before we you know, really talk about the takeaways, 
let's dive in a little more into what actually happened. What did the teams do? How did they think about the problem? You know, what creative things did they attempt against each other? And, well, yeah, and how, did, okay. how did the allies play in this? Instead of taking you blow by blow, which I think would perhaps deprive people of the joy of looking at the report, <laughs> which kind of reads like a movie a script. <laughs> I mean, it, it's actually fun to read. I mean, I, I, you know, doing the game at times you thought, oh my God, you know, what, what who's going to follow this? But would you write it all out? It's actually quite interesting. I mean, you could go into doing a movie on something like this. Rather than go blow by blow, let me highlight at least what happened in the first move to get things started that was really unexpected and interesting. The Essentially, the first move consisted of the Chinese taking a step, which I'm not sure they're that likely to take, but was excellent for the game. There was a big debate in the China game as to how provocative they should be with regard to their space operations. Uh, they had a handful of uh, rendezvous satellites. The China team first suggested and talked amongst, amongst themselves, well, we could use our lasers, which we have on the ground, to upset Japan's low-Earth orbit satellites, observation satellites, to kind of telegraph to them, you really do not want to get too close to the Americans in protecting Taiwan. And the beauty of, of the laser uh, that were based on the ground is, first of all, they're dual use. So, you know, you, you don't know exactly which lasers might be used against you. You use lasers to determine the range and location of things in space. You can even use them in the future, I think, to move things around a little by putting energy on them. But of course, as the lasers get more and more powerful, you can temporarily disable sensors on uh, satellites with them and even at some point physically damage the material skin of a satellite and, and, and totally disable it permanently. The, the lasing idea was well, we'll just do this so that there's temporary damage and disclaim anything actually happened, you know, because you have a hard time knowing, well, you, you know, why things don't work. You know, it's, it's not immediate. Oh, well, this exactly has happened to us. Another thing that they thought that they might do is come close to other uh, satellites than military ones with rendezvous satellites. But all of those options, which could, in fact, be the basis of a different game, uh, were not exercised. They went and located their small fleet of rendezvous satellites to very close to the command and control satellites for our nuclear forces, which was quite provocative. I mean, one of the other things they were debating in the China team is, well, maybe we can disable or, or, or hurt something. Uh, and claim that it wasn't us, it was somebody else's satellite that did this. Uh, because there, there would be, by then, other satellites that could conceivably do uh, the kind of harm that the Chinese uh, would want to do. But again, they didn't do any of that. They just co-located, uh, over a period of time, their satellites next to our most important nuclear command and control satellites. And the idea there, they thought, was while that was provocative, uh, it it didn't it didn't do anything, but it messaged that Japan could not rely on the United States 
to continue to supply uh, a, a guarantee of their security by threatening nuclear operations against China because China could take out the eyes, ears, voice, and um, nervous system of the nuclear command system of the United States quickly if they chose to. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone quite expected such a provocative move. I'm not sure how realistic that is, but that's the problem. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody, and they could do it. The, so then, the, yeah. so then what, what happened in response and, you know, what happened in the subsequent move? Well, you know, first thing that you discover is all of your spacefaring allies really depend on alpha dog actor. And that turns out to be us. They don't actually sit around reasoning with one another about what to do. They, they call Washington and ask, well, what are you going to do? And I think that's good and bad news <laughs> in a sense, because uh, we cannot avoid the leadership uh, role uh, and say, oh, well, you know, there are other countries, uh, we'll have to defer to what they think. They will come directly to us and make requests that, um, hey, can you guarantee our security with uh, your nuclear systems? A, B, can you supply us? with all of the data and information that we'll need if our satellites are disabled temporarily and are unreliable? And the answer is, well, we have to be able to say yes. Um, now, there was an overweening desire given the uncertainty of what exactly was going on in space to try to negotiate uh, during the crisis uh, some agreement on zones. Good luck. Uh, that didn't seem to be something that was going to work with the Chinese. And it took a lot of time to figure out what our view was on what we thought was a proper zone and how it should work. You're not going to probably have a whole lot of luck or a whole lot of time to do that when you're in the middle of a crisis. You know, one of the takeaways is you better get agreement on what that's all about, even if you can't get it with China or Russia, well in advance of any crisis. Are we doing that? So, so this is probably a decent time to try to, to actually step through the key takeaways and try to get into them with some meat. So you had, I, I think it's four, four or five key takeaways. Yes. Some of the takeaways were, um, you know, quite basic. And I think uh, a little rattling. <laughs> In that, uh, you know, you hear people say these things, but it's not necessarily all that persuasive. I think the beauty of the game is you, you kind of come to the conclusion that, it, uh, that some of the, the more radical uh, conclusions actually, you know, are what you've got to be focused on. Uh, you know, one of the key findings was that the United States would have to start building up a, a fleet with others of bodyguards. Uh, you know, that you, you, can't, you can't play without certain capabilities. Right now, we are working sort of slowly uh, to build up certain satellites. They have to be cheap and they have to be numerous. That is one thing. The other thing that we 
kind of found out in the preliminary uh, briefings is that you may also need to start investing now in things that are beyond the the scope or, or range of the combat that was encountered in the game. Now, there's we a lot of the action was from uh, geo and lower uh, geo uh, being geostationary, which is like I I think it's uh, help me out here. Is it's twenty four thousand miles up? How did I do? Did I get that right? You're pretty close. That's okay. That's about right. Well, about and closer in, but. You know, outside of that sphere, and that's where most of the satellites of interest you want to protect are, you know, they're there lower. But uh, you're going to want to start worrying about satellites that might uh, be deployed from parked orbits much higher up, closer to the moon, which is referred to exotically in my mind as cislunar orbits, you know, orbits that are uh, played upon by the gravitation of the moon. That is not something that you can work if you're not up there to some extent. And you're going to have to know what's going on uh, near the moon, which is, uh, we discovered, not so easy. And that's a big project, a big lift. And so you got to start spending on that as well to cover, if you will, your rear flank in space. So that was a little unexpected. I think people talk about this publicly uh, as a kind of theoretical kind of problem. But in the time of the game, it's not so theoretic. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's worth, you know, pausing a minute to talk about, you know, why that is, you know, first of all, because once you get beyond about three times the distance of geostationary orbit, the gravity uh, of the moon is significant enough that it can create these chaotic orbits that are very, very hard to track because they're not predictable circles and ellipses as they are closer in. And then, you know, geo is also, you know, right at the edge of many of our, our sensing capabilities. And so as you move further out, particularly, you know, the moon is 10 times as far as geo, it becomes very challenging for your sensors to detect in the first place when the volume is so much larger. And, and the last problem is that the moon is so bright uh, that it basically washes out, you know, what ground-based telescopes can see. So well, that makes actually, it very difficult. Yeah, but there's a third problem. It costs a ton of money, and you got to start making decisions about when you're going to spend on it versus these other things. <laughs> it kind of stretches you, your uh, allocation of resources and, and forces you to make some very tough decisions. But we... You know, we say, well, but you got to start thinking about that, maybe, you know, putting some money aside for that and starting to do things. The second thing that we highlighted as a general finding is that you're going to have to pay much greater attention to how commercial systems could be targeted on the one hand and used for military purposes. I think it's disturbing and maybe it isn't the world we want, but in space, you're not going to see a whole lot of uniforms that says, hey, I'm a military satellite. I'm a military actor. Everyone in space could either be a target or, or target another satellite in space. And that is an unpleasant and difficult world and not very much like the world on the ground. Although even there, I suppose you could say there's 
that we're moving more and more to what's called gray operations, where there are people without proper insignia running around doing things that accomplish the, the goals of a traditional uh, military operation. Well, that's, that's definitely the case in space. One of the things that we need to be paying attention, according to the players of this game, was that China might use its financial clout to buy and control foreign commercial space firms so that they can use these assets of these foreign space firms to do space operations. And they might even uh, you know, choose to do this with countries like North Korea, who are not even signatories to any of the rules, much less the Outer Space Treaty. In any case, we're going to have to worry about legitimate Uh, rendezvous satellites that are doing needed services and refueling, uh, removing space debris, laser tracking of uh, satellites from the ground, all legitimate activities. We're going to have to keep track of those things because they could be flipped pretty quickly to a military mission. And so that is a pretty difficult intelligence requirements at a minimum. And it, it means that space surveillance isn't just keeping track of objects, but knowing what they might do. So that was the second finding. Now, the third finding uh, was diplomatic. We all would like somehow to think that everyone else is as worried about these uncertainties in space as we are. And arguably, at some point, that may, may well happen. But right now, the Chinese and Russians probably view space slightly differently than we do in that they're much more interested in denying our ability to use it than they are necessarily as seized with the necessity of using it themselves. Now that will change. And I think it is changing as their military forces become dependent and require all kinds of information for uh, precision uh, guidance and and the target identification and bomb damage assessment, all that. But generally, their, their operations are very close to their borders, whereas ours are <laughs> halfway around the world. And so that all is a long, elaborate way of saying they're not going to be necessarily very agreeable in negotiations about any rules uh, with regard to the protection of space assets. They rather like that there are no rules. So if you're going to uh, negotiate, and, you, and you're going to have to, because our allies uh, want to know what our views are on what is an illicit and a legitimate space operation. So we're, we're in it, whether the Chinese and Russians are going to be uh, agreeable or not, uh, you need to be careful uh, that you reach an agreement that is self-enforcing. In other words, you probably can't rely on the good faith uh, act, uh, of, of the actors uh, that are bad actors, whether they be Russians, Chinese, Iranians, North Koreans. You're going to have to be able to have uh, rules that empower each actor to take defensive action and justify it after it's occurred. That is not normally the kind of arms control agreement uh, we reach uh, with regard to things like nuclear weapons. It's kind of different. So that was another key finding. The final finding is uh, if you can't work with your allies, 
to collaborate on operations and share information uh, that's highly classified right now, uh, you might as well give up now. You're going to lose. You're going to need the allies. That is our comparative advantage. Now, I know we say this and have been saying this ever since the First World War, and to varying degrees, of course, it's true. But the bureaucracies in, I guess, the space field are very reluctant to share secrets about how capable satellites and uh, space-related capabilities are and what we might do. I think maybe because the emperor isn't as fully clothed as we would like people to believe, maybe that's the reason. Maybe we think by being unclear, we can generate fear in the Russian and Chinese minds. But the utility of playing the secrecy card to leverage Chinese and Russian and other countries' uh, behavior that might be hostile to us has pretty much been exhausted. We've played that card ever since the end of the Cold War. We need to actually innovate and deploy new systems very, very quickly. We need to make it very clear or clearer uh, to our allies what we're, what we're willing to do, when we would do it, what the red lines might be. And we need to convey that even to countries that, that might be hostile. And that is a culture change that we are in the midst of and we are going very slowly at. That could kill us. Um, now, you made a specific observation uh, about how this could uh, undermine our interests and that some allies require much more significant diplomatic uh, engagement so that they're not peeled off than others. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, one of the specific findings is we found that uh, in the game, and I don't know you know, how fair this is, but the, the Japanese even when they, there's one of their satellites gets uh, disabled and we can't figure out exactly how that happened because their space surveillance capabilities weren't very good. Uh, but even when they took uh, a hit, uh, the United States was able to supply them with functionally equivalent capabilities that they lost. We were able to hold on to the Japanese. The South Koreans, who are a really important ally, I mean, after all, we've got you know, 20,000 American soldiers uh, on their soil. I mean, really a, a, quite a big commitment. They were very uh, standoffish. They wanted to know, well, how does this help us deal with North Korea whenever we approach them to perhaps uh, weigh in and help out? Uh, and I think one of the takeaways is, I think we're going to have to uh, increase our U.S. and allied space-related cooperation with Seoul. It's something that we have not done enough of, I think. And I, I realize people may feel uncomfortable doing this because, well, we, we like the, the Japanese so much and South Koreans argue with us about North Korea so much, but we're going to have to kind of come to terms with that. I don't know that we fully have and we need to. Well, I realize that we are coming close to the end of our time here, so I wanted to make sure that if there's anything that we did not cover about the game, that you had a chance to weigh in and provide uh, any of those insights that hadn't been captured so far, and maybe talk about if there are any next steps planned, either to get the word out about this game with policymakers or subsequent follow-on events. Well, we're going to do uh, two more games. 
that deal with space. And actually, I am I'm trying to stand up a course on civil and military space-related policy, the fundamentals for government, the people either in friendly embassies in Washington, or even for that matter, overseas, if they can make the time. Obviously, U.S. legislative and executive branch people, and, and including intel and military people. So in addition to standing up that course, we'll have them participate in a game uh, that has a different problem. And I think the gaming that we're doing, I hope, is an example of what other people can do. I mean, uh, I am a very small think tank. I mean, we, we're very small. But if we can set an example, get other people who are bigger to do these things, terrific. I think there's some reason to believe that's going on. When I first did this, uh, started to do these games, I was told it was very unorthodox and probably, I mean, one foundation told me, well, why would you want to do a war game? It'll increase people's interest in going into war. I said, that is a weird way to look at this. So there were a lot of people, even in the funding community, that were reluctant to get into gaming. I think all that's changed in the last 18 months, principally because of COVID. And, you know, because you, you can't meet. And we, we, we do these games virtually. We do, not, we do not meet and touch one another. The games can be done that way. I think there's certain advantages to that, which is that you can involve people without uh, having to do the heavy lifting of flying them in from halfway around the globe. I mean, we had Japanese and Australians involved in this, but there are you know things that you give up. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on in person on side conversations. You probably you know miss out a little, but that said, you can do this virtually quite well. There, you know, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sure that one question that uh, that some folks would have is, what is sort of the the cost benefit of doing you know this in the open? Because obviously, it's published. You know, our our competitors can read all the clever things that they might have tried and didn't work, and all the things that you know might have uh, stymied us. You know, and, and that's out there, you know, for them, but it's also out there for our policymakers. How, how, particularly in a democracy, how do you, you know, for yourself work through the, the cost and benefit of doing this in open kimono? Okay. Well, I think secrets are critical to protect the common defense. Let's not get silly about this. So it's not like I'm going to make an argument, well, let everything hang out. But when you've got some challenging public policy, uh, and that's what this is. Military strategy is kind of at some level is public policy. When you have problems that require debate and discussion, relying on uh, you know closed conversations with interested and, if you will, conflicted parties is probably not very smart or effective. I think if you take a look at a lot of the gaming that went on prior to the Second World War, it wasn't that secretive that we needed aircraft carriers, that we needed to think about Pacific operations on specific islands in different ways. All of that, I think, was pretty much known. Discussions of air power and how it might be used similarly were, were openly discussed. I think one way to look at this is, you know, if you read the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers about public debate on public policy, 
they actually relished having so much debate public that no one would know exactly which of the public policies being propounded in the press were the ones that we needed to follow. So that, you know, the protection you can get is if you have enough ideas, um, there are alternatives and the, 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 your opponents have to figure out, holy cow, there are 1500 different things that might, you know, they might do. And they're talking about all of them, which one are they going to do? I think that is a smarter way to go right now. And that also applies to hardware innovation. We have been uh, going awfully slow in acquiring new kinds of satellites, new kinds of jammers, new kinds of lasers, et cetera, et cetera. And the thought was and has been for quite a while, well, if you keep everything secret, no one will know exactly what we have. And they will assume that we have maybe even more than what we do. And that'll be fine. I don't think that's sustainable anymore. I think we actually have to increase the acquisition rates it cheapened the cost of acquisition, innovate an awful lot more, work with allies and get them on board and share more information with them. I think we have to lift our skirts a bit. And um, that's maybe not something we're used to doing, but I think that's the way forward. I think gaming and having more game by more parties and yes, in public uh, is a good way to go. Well, Henry, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's been quite a treat to be able to explain some of these uh, difficult questions uh, or the answers to them. And your interest in these things and your show is part of the answer, I think, to how we do better. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.